and we don't know that we're asking, it's still a question that sometimes makes us a little bit anxious. Uh, it shapes us. It shapes what we do. It shapes how we behave and what we believe and what our priorities are and even how we spend our time. And that question is, is there enough? Is there enough? Because my guess is that for all of us, um, if we sorted through our lives, we all have at least one area where we ask that question pretty regularly. Here's what I mean. Some of you, that question is a very quantifiable one. Um, it has to do with money. It has to do with your finances. And you're asking the question, right, in light of the money that I have now or the money that I will earn later, do I have enough to pay my mortgage, to put my kids in college, uh, to put food on the table, whatever it might be. And, and it, you ask that question, and you know, the answer to that question shapes you, whether or not you say yes or no. Right? So the question of whether or not there's enough money might encourage you to go get a second job, or be thrifty, or budget differently. But when you think about that question, you feel some anxiety, and you feel that kind of question just pressing in on you. For others of you, that question of enough is a little bit less concrete, right? So you're thinking about, uh, are my parenting skills good enough to make the kids that I want to make, to raise the kids that I want to raise? Um, is my re re relationship with them, is it strong enough, or are my other responsibilities in life maybe taking away from my ability to parent, parent them the way that I want to? Uh, maybe you feel this way about time. And you're just asking the question about time, like, is there enough time to do everything that I want to do? If we've got demanding jobs or young families or busy schedules, we're asking that question, right? Is there enough time to do all that I need to do in a day? Um, for others of us, that question of time looks a little bit differently, too. Um, you might be somebody who's facing uh, a long-term or maybe terminal illness, and so you're counting the days, and you're looking, and you're saying, is there enough time, like literally enough days left in my life? to do the things that I want to do. And so I bet if we would sift through each and every one of our lives, we would probably find one or maybe even several areas where that question jumps into our minds pretty regularly. And we begin to feel like there's something essential, right? something that we need that there just isn't enough of. Whether it's time or money or relationship or whatever, there's this feeling of scarcity that just exists. Sometimes we can apply that question to ourselves, too. Like, am I enough? So maybe it's not about stuff or things that are kind of uh, surrounding us externally, but what about me? You know, am, am I smart enough? Am I skinny enough? Am I interesting enough? Or talented enough to do the things that I want to do in life? And so this question can press in on us from a lot of different directions and a lot of different ways, but what it often tells us is that our resources are limited, and there might be a time that comes where you don't have what you need, or you don't have what it takes. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been in this series um, called Marvel, where we're looking at the miracles of Jesus and tying them kind of back into this thing that's going on broad, more broadly in culture, talking about superheroes and specifically the Marvel movies. And what's interesting is that within the Marvel movies, there is actually a perfect example of this mindset that I'm talking about. So I'm going to show you a clip here in just one minute, but I want to just give you a little bit of setup in case you're not totally tracking with the Marvel movies, right? So... 
the big bad guy for like the last literally seven or eight years inside the Marvel movies is a big purple guy named Thanos, okay? And his goal is to collect these six powerful stones. When you say all this out loud, it sounds kind of silly. But this big purple guy wants to collect these six powerful stones because these stones, when he possesses them all at once, would give him the ability to do anything he wants to. So basically, whatever his will is, he can execute it. And his goal is to wipe out half of all life in the entire universe. So he wants to snap his fingers and make half of all life, plants, animals, humans, other species, whatever, totally disappear. And of course, the Avengers want to stop this. But the reason that he's doing this isn't just because he's evil, isn't just because he's crazy, but actually because of an experience that he had in his life that he wants to prevent from happening again. And so in the scene you're about to see, um, one of our heroes, Doctor Strange, one of the Avengers, is talking to Thanos about kind of what motivates him and what he's doing in this plan. So I'm going to play that for you now. Whoops. Can you play that for me? If you click on the screen, does it go? Nothing? If it does, that's okay. I'll just explain it. I'll act it out. Yeah, yeah, I will. All right, so Thanos walks through a portal, and um, you, can just, you can just go on, Stephen, not a big deal. Basically, what happens is um, Thanos appears on his home planet, this planet called Titan, and everything is in ruins, so you can just imagine this kind of like post-apocalyptic landscape, and he talks to Doctor Strange, and what he says is that when he was growing up, Thanos was growing up on the planet of Titan, um, basically, there weren't enough resources to go around. And so what he saw was this chaos that was about to come down the line and, and this, this war that was about to happen because of the limited resources. And so what his suggestion was, we take the whole population and we kill half... Oh, here we go. But we can't see it. I'm sorry, just skip it, Stephen. <laughs> you can hear the conversation. Um, and basically what he says is his suggestion was to just basically kill half the population indiscriminately, not choosing rich and poor, not choosing this person or that person or this group and that group, but just kind of randomly selecting half the population and wiping them out. Because if you did that, then there would be plenty of resources to go around, right? But they didn't do it for obvious reasons. But what happened long term was that this chaos befell the society because they ran out of resources, too many people, not enough stuff, and everybody died. And so that's what actually motivates Thanos in these movies. And what's interesting is that this idea actually kind of resonates with people in our world. There's actually a website uh, that you can go to. It's on Reddit, if anybody is a Redditor, um, that is um, called Thanos Did Nothing Wrong. And, when you, and, and the, the kind of driving idea behind that, right, is that he's right. That if we look at our world and, the, and a limited number of resources with a population that's growing... Maybe he's right. Maybe it would be better if half of us weren't here. But from a theological perspective, there's a problem with this idea. Because if we act on the idea, right, that every resource is scarce, that there just is never enough, then the consequence of this is what it does is it runs us headfirst into idolatry. 
runs us headfirst into worshiping something that is not God. Because we, if we feel like there is a shortage of something in our lives or just regularly in our world, then our entire lives often become about pursuing that thing that we lack. And maybe it's something that even like comes from childhood, right? So we, maybe we were poor growing up, so now we're very materialistic. Or maybe we weren't loved by our family, and so our entire life is a quest for like love and acceptance because we weren't loved as kids. Whatever that might look like, we spend our time, we spend our energy, and ultimately we worship, trying to find that thing, whether it's love or money or possessions, sex, relevance, attention, popularity, food, adrenaline. Some of us are adrenaline junkies. And the thing is, is that the world and the culture around us actually reinforces this mindset, this thing called the myth of scarcity. Look at advertising. Is anybody a Black Friday shopper? Black Friday shopping is all based upon the idea that this time and these deals are limited, right? It's only going to happen today. You're only going to get this price right now, so you've got to move because it is a limited resource. And so it happens all the time. If you just watch commercials, if you watch TV, this is a really, similar th- uh, this is a really common thing. But one of the other things that you see um, is that this can also extend into things that are a little bit more sinful and, and more destructive. A few years ago, there was a website that was created for the sole purpose of allowing married couples, all right, so somebody, in a, in somebody who's married, to cheat on their spouse with somebody else who was also married. And their tagline for this website was, life is short, have an affair. And so you think about the mindset, right, behind that slogan. That time is short, life is short, right? Your, your capacity for enjoyment is running out, and so you might as well cheat. And I believe as Christian people, a lot of times we operate out of this posture way too often. We are motivated by fear. We are motivated by this myth of scarcity that there just simply isn't enough of something, whatever that is for you. And so in life, we probably feel a little bit of a pull. We feel like maybe we're caught between two places. On the one hand, right, we feel this myth of scarcity that is all around us in this culture and and the things we believe about the world, and yet we worship a God who in the garden, right, put trees for everything that that we could eat from, every single one except one, have all this abundance. You think about, um, you know, Israel in the wilderness, and every day they were provided for by God, You think about the land that they moved into, um, the land flowing with milk and honey, right? And eventually we get to Jesus who says, I've come to give you life and life abundant. And so we're kind of caught in between that we can't hold these two things together, this scarcity mindset and this God of abundance. And so um, we're going to look at the story that we read just a few minutes ago And what we discover in this place are two people that are in this mindset, in this space of scarcity. And yet what they find is Jesus, who is a God of abundance. And that question of enough gets settled for them once and for all. And so what we're actually going to do is talk through the story kind of step by step and and go through it chronologically. And so it starts off with um, Jesus getting off of the boat uh, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And as he does, this crowd, so the crowds are always waiting for Jesus, um, this crowd starts to like press in around him because they want to hear what he has to say. They want to see what he does. And out of the crowd comes this man named Jairus. And Jairus comes up to Jesus and he falls at his feet and he says, my little daughter is at the point of death. 
Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So Jesus went with him. And so Jairus is this man who is a synagogue leader. And the word that's used here is actually um, the word that's used for like the synagogue president. So he was kind of the head honcho of the local synagogue. Man with a lot of power, uh, a lot of prestige, and somebody that would have had a lot of respect in the community. And yet this man, with all this respect and all this authority, he comes and he throws himself at the feet of Jesus because he recognizes, right? He recognizes the power that Jesus has. And what he explains is that uh, his daughter is deathly ill. She's on the verge of dying and that this is a really urgent matter. And so Jesus goes with him. He says, okay, I'll come with you. But as he does, this large crowd follows him and they press in around him. And there was a woman who was suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many doctors and had spent all that she had and still was no better, but actually grew worse. And so Jesus is walking and this big crowd is is pressing in around her. And in that crowd is a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. And this bleeding that she has is probably like a continual like menstrual bleeding for 12 whole years. And what's interesting about this is it says that she spent all of her money on doctors. And in the ancient world, you didn't go to a doctor if you were poor. And so she started off as a woman with wealth, as a woman with some means to be able to go to doctors and try to get healed. But what it tells us is that she ended up destitute because she spent all of her money on doctors, and yet none of them helped her. And in fact, they made her worse. Some of you know what that's like. Right? Some of you know that feeling of frustration and despair um, when you've got something going on and you bounce from doctor to doctor to doctor and nobody can help you. And so you can put yourself in her shoes. But what it says is that she heard about Jesus. So she heard that this man was doing things that was healing people. And she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. And she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. And so she reaches out and she touches his cloak and immediately she's healed. And so Jesus does in an instant, almost by accident, what no doctor could do for her for more than a decade, and that stopped the bleeding. And so he calls her out of the crowd, and she kind of, she again hits her knees before him, and um, shows him respect, fear, and trembling, and he says, go in peace, your faith has made you well. It goes on, and it says, while he was still speaking, so while Jesus is still speaking to this woman, some people came from the leader's house and said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? And so as Jesus is having this conversation with the bleeding woman, people come from the leader's house and they say, you might as well give up, it's too late, she's already gone. So this man gets news that his daughter is dead. But Jesus, overhearing what they said, said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make such a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And so as Jesus approaches this house, what he sees is this commotion of mourners and weeping and wailing and and funeral music playing. And people are mourning the loss of this girl. But the other thing that's going on here is that people in Jesus' day would actually hire professional mourners. So you would go out and you would pay somebody money to show up at your house and actually mourn for you um, and make a big commotion. And and they're kind of like paid actors that would help help everybody kind of get in the mood to cry, I guess. 
And it might sound weird, but that was a, a kind of a cultural custom of the time, the same way, you know, we might pay someone to come sing Amazing Grace, you know, at a, a funeral for a loved one. But the point of this is that these people, right, these people knew death when they saw it. Their whole job was to show up at people's homes where somebody had just died and weep and wail and mourn. And so they knew dead when they saw it. And so when Jesus says, don't worry, she's not dead, but she's sleeping, they laugh. Because they're like, no, no, no. <laughs> like, we've seen this before. Like, she's, she's not just sleeping, we promise you. <clears throat> and so they laugh at him. And so then Jesus puts them all outside, and he takes the child's father and mother and the disciples that are with him, and they go in where the little girl is laying, probably on a bed or on a couch or something like that. And he takes her by the hand, and he says, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. An interesting thing, uh, Talitha means little lamb in Aramaic. And so he takes this girl's hand and, and uses this like, kind of endearing term, you know, not just little girl, but like little lamb, get up, which is kind of cool, I think. And so the girl is healed. She comes back to life. And she begins walking around, and Jesus is like, get her something to eat. <laughs> she, she's been sick. She's even been dead for a little while. Like, she needs some food. So as Mark relays this story to us, what I think he does is he, he sets us up with a really stark contrast between these two people, right? This is a story of two daughters. The little girl who is the daughter of Jairus and the woman that Jesus calls daughter. When he says, daughter, go, your faith has made you well. Think about their different places in the world for a second. Think about Jairus' daughter. Jairus was somebody who was a religious leader, so he had all kinds of authority and respect, like we mentioned. He would have had all of the, the different um, rituals down and, and the religion of Israel down pat, and it would have just been in the temple every single day, in the synagogue every single day, doing his work. He was upper class. <clears throat> he had wealth, because that position was a coveted one. He got, would have gotten paid quite a bit. Um, he was male, which helped in those days for sure. And so he would have had plenty of, of reason to talk to Jesus, to just go up on to, to, to him on the street and just say, hey, you know, come help my daughter. And any place he would have taken his daughter, he would have gone right to the top of the list. I mean, he was VIP. So if he walked into a doctor and said, please treat my daughter, he would have been patient number one right away. Compare that, though, to the bleeding woman. This woman who doesn't even have a name, or we don't know her name, she's female, lower in society, and really would have no business talking to Jesus face to face. She's lower class, whereas he's upper class. Um, she's poor, we're told that, that she spent all of her money on doctors and now she's destitute. Meanwhile, he's rich. And in terms of the religious life, you had Jairus who was in the, the synagogue every day doing the religious stuff, but her, because of the, Le the Levitical law, because of her issue of bleeding, wouldn't have been able to enter the temple, enter the synagogue in her condition for more than a decade. So this woman is way outside on the margins, <clears throat> not equals in society. And yet, they're both in severe pain, they're both people in this, this state of scarcity, and they both need healing. <clears throat> and so Mark puts before us this question, who gets priority in this case? If you're Jesus, and you're standing face to face, with this woman or with this little girl, and you've got a choice. Which one are you going to heal? And how do you choose? Do you choose based on class? Based on religious observance? 
Maybe you just do triage and go most critical first and then follow it up. But the idea here is that healing, to us, looks like a scarce commodity. Right? To us, healing is like the myth of scarcity. And this idea is only reinforced for us because while Jesus has stopped and has talked to this bleeding woman, Jairus' daughter, um, some miles away probably, dies. And so if you're Jairus' daughter's father, if you're Jairus, and you are walking with Jesus, and this woman reaches out and grabs Jesus by the cloak and stops him, what's going through your mind? You're thinking, like, time is of the essence here. Like, forget about this woman. Get to my house because my daughter is this close. And so we wonder, if Jesus wouldn't have stopped, would the little girl have made it? And if Jesus just ignored the bleeding woman and went to the little girl's house to get her before she died, would that be fair to the bleeding woman? And so what we have here is is a story where the elements look really familiar to a lot of us. Spending money on doctors, suffering, death, mourning. These are all pictures of scarcity that you and I are really, really familiar with. But then there's this other element to the story that Jesus brings. Right? Where it says that Jesus isn't interested in money. Jairus is wealthy, but this woman has no money to bring, and yet she finds healing. We're anxious about Jesus' pace, right? He's going to show up late. He's not getting there fast enough. And yet Jesus shows that there's more than enough time. When everybody else is convinced that life is gone and it's not coming back, all of a sudden there's Jesus who's bringing more. And so what Jesus shows in this story is that when our lives intersect with his, right, this myth of scarcity no longer has control over the story. Instead, the God that is active through Jesus is the same God who made abundance in the beginning and promised us abundance now, and he is in control of the story. And what this does is it has huge implications for our ideas of what it means to have enough. Because what we see is that Jesus himself is not a scarce commodity. And when men and women put their faith in him, their lives intersect with this kingdom, this place of abundance that the world simply does not possess. You see, in the story, Jesus enters this situation where people are are just deeply wounded and they're suffering all around us. But on the other side of the story, what they realize is that Jesus is enough. Right? He's powerful enough and authoritative enough and God enough not only to heal that which was broken, but also to actually resurrect that which has already died. You see, the default posture that you and I have is a a pursuit. To find a place, to find a time in our lives, to find an identity where it feels like there's finally enough. Where we feel settled and we feel secure. And like I said, the world pushes us very much in that direction by telling us that we aren't enough. And there isn't enough. And the resources are simply limited. And so what we do is we pursue wealth or security or relevance or authority or education or degrees or whatever it might be because we want to feel wholeness. We don't want to feel that sense of scarcity in our lives. But ultimately what we find when we do that is that they don't possess enoughness, if we can call that a word. 
It's not something that the world has. It's something that only exists in the kingdom of God. And so the question that I think you and I need to reflect on is this. What in my life am I convinced there's not enough of? What question of enough is shaping my behavior and forcing me into places that God does not want me to go? What controls me? What is my idol that I'm constantly pursuing, hoping and thinking one day it'll be enough? And what would it look like for me to embrace the idea that we don't live in a creation of scarcity, but instead one of abundance? See, when we start thinking this way, when we shift our thinking like this, I think one of two things happens. When we invite God into that process, first of all, what we find a lot of times is that God delivers directly what we need. And we see this all, all kinds of ways throughout the Bible and throughout people's lives. Um, you know, people that didn't know where they were going to get groceries, somebody else fits the bill. Couples who can't conceive for years and years and years, and all of a sudden, there's the miracle baby. People who are sick and pray for healing and actually receive it. Right? God is not a God who is scarce on resources. And he will share those resources with us often when we approach him in faith. But the second consequence, and the one that I would say is probably more common for a lot of us, is that when we lean into God in this, we start to relearn what enough actually is. Right? We come from a consumer culture. And so the ads and the commercials and the culture itself says our job in this life is to accumulate and amass and cling tightly to our resources. But when we move to a place of faith in Jesus, when the abundance of the person of Jesus comes into our lives, what we often realize is that we already have enough. Right here and right now. Right? And, so, and so God's way teaches us to use what we have well. And so when it comes to money or love or sex or notoriety or affirmation or self-esteem or relationships or wherever that striving is for us, what we realize is that Jesus has freed us from the need to have more and more and more and more and has given us the ability to be content with what God has given us today. And so all of a sudden, you know, we learn God's way of managing money. And so we learn what it means to have enough. Not to have excess, not to have too much, but to have enough. And then to share with those in need. We learn Jesus' way of having possessions, that we can't serve both God and things, and so we reform our ideas of what it means to have enough stuff. We learn Jesus' way of sex and relationships, right, where we don't need to accumulate sexual experiences for fulfillment, but instead monogamy and fidelity are enough. We learn God's way of stewarding time. As Psalm 90 says, right, we, God teaches us to count our days. And we learn that the time that God has provided us is enough. I mean, we worship a God who was poor, single, and died at 33. And so if you put that on paper, you would say, that guy got kind of a raw deal. And yet because of his intimacy with his heavenly father, his material needs were cared for even though he was poor. His relationships were deep, even though he was single. And he had a greater impact on the world in 33 years and just three years of ministry than anybody else who has ever lived. And so when we walk closely after Jesus and walk after God, what we find is that what we already have counts for more than it ever has. And so I ask you, don't let the question of enough be the one that runs your life. 
In a world that tries to convince us of scarcity and inadequacy, in Christ there is abundance that is far greater than we could ever anticipate or imagine. And he offers us himself and asks us to put our faith in his enoughness for every area of our life and death. And what we find is that there's enough Jesus to go around for you and for me and for all the sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. To you, Heavenly Father, we give thanks um, just that you've put us in this place of abundance, um, that in this world there is more than enough to provide for all of us, Lord, and, and the systems are broken and we are broken and people are selfish, um, we are selfish, and so it doesn't al- always um, look like there's enough, Lord. But God, we know that you are a God of goodness and abundance, and you have caused all of these things to thrive around us, Lord. And so just if we would walk closer to you, we would understand how to make the most of what we've got. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just speak to us and give us your Holy Spirit, that we would stop striving, uh, that we would stop being so concerned about having enough of whatever that thing is, Lord, and that we'd just lean in you and know that you're enough. Um, You're bigger than us, and you fill in the gaps where we are inadequate, Lord, and you forgive us in the places where we fall short. And ultimately, the opinions of the world don't matter. And so, God, we pray that you would walk with us, teach us, Lord, how to be this people of generosity, to not live into the myth of scarcity, but instead uh, to believe in the liturgy of abundance. And so, Lord, in doing that, we pray as your son Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And now as a response, we sing together. Uh, You may remain seated. I need thee every hour.